Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. There are few more incisive observers of contemporary democracy than the Brookings Institute senior fellow Richard Reeves. As the author of the definitive biography of John Stuart Mill, as well as Dream Hoarders, Reeves has both an impressive philosophical and practical take on the contemporary crisis of democracy. And so, to kick off our recent conversation at his office in Washington, D.C., I asked Reeves how exactly he defines democracy. What is democracy? Democracy is a system whereby most of the power in the society about most of the big decisions that are made in that society are held by most of the people. There are very different kinds of democracy, but the, ascent, the essence of it is that the majority are the ones who hold most power over the biggest decisions affecting their lives. So democracy must be a, a noisy affair. Democracy, like liberalism, is a messy, noisy, cacophonous, frictional, frustrating, and often irrational and sometimes even unproductive uh, set of activities, but for all of that, it's still worth it. You've written this great biography of uh, John Stuart Mill. Why, why should we, I guess, reread Mill or maybe even read your biography of Mill? Why does Mill still matter? I think, if anything, he matters even more today than perhaps he did 50, 50 years ago, and perhaps even more today than five years ago, because the very idea of a liberal society, the very idea of liberalism as the organizing frame for our politics and for our society has been questioned uh, in a way that it hasn't been uh, systematically within our societies for decades, if not centuries. And so going back to someone who I think really did wrestle with the questions of how do we square liberty with tradition? How do we square democracy with the dangers of kind of the, the, the mass rising up, et cetera? In, in a way, in the birth of modern liberalism in the 19th century, I think actually those questions of why liberalism, why liberty, are being asked with even more urgency today than in recent history. You use the word liberalism. Is that interchangeable with democracy? No, but I think for a while we fooled ourselves into thinking that it was. For a while it felt as if the words liberal and democracy went together almost uh, as through some force of nature. And what we're realizing now is that whilst they are in some ways related to each other, 
we're being reminded of what Isaiah Berlin and people like Mill taught us, which is that liberty and democracy are separate things. And it's perfectly possible, in theory, to have an illiberal democracy and a democratically illiberal society. And we're even seeing signs of that around the world today. And so the relationship between liberalism as a political philosophy and democracy as a kind of political machinery is, again, something that's being questioned in a way that we haven't seen for some time. Do you think that Mills on Liberty is the definitive text of liberal democracy, certainly in the 19th century? I believe that it is. I would describe it as the New Testament of modern liberalism. It's hard to find uh, a, a clearer uh, and more succinct argument for the various facets of liberalism, which I think we come to take for granted. And indeed, it was the fact that we came to take them for granted in a way that someone like Mill never would that I think has sowed the seeds for some of our present discontents. If Mill is the New Testament for liberal democracy, what's the Old Testament? Well, unless we go all the way back to Pericles, perhaps, I think I'll probably stick with John Locke. And what about the Americans, Jefferson? It's the British philosopher John Locke who is the founding grandfather of US liberal thought. It's very important for Americans, and I'm now an American, U.S. citizen recognized that much of the liberal thinking that has influenced American thought was imported, was imported from revolutionary 17th century England, was imported from revolutionary France, as well as from some of the Republican studies of ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And so we're used to saying that the U.S. is an immigrant nation in terms of its people, but it is to some extent also an immigrant nation in terms of its ideas. And people like Locke were hugely influential on the founders, including Jefferson, Madison and others. Would it be fair to say that Mill's most profound contribution to the literature on democracy is his focus on the right of minorities? I think one of the most important legacies of Mill's thought is how his liberalism led him to a position on women, for example, or the US Civil War, the rights and positions of people of color, Indians, African-Americans, that was very, very egalitarian, and certainly by the standards of the 19th century, and even quite egalitarian by today's standards. But that was as a result of his liberalism. It wasn't in any way counterposed to his liberalism. In fact, if your liberalism is defined the way Mill defined it, which is the right of each individual to pursue their own good in their own way, then anything that stands in the way of that, whether it's sexism or racism or any other kind of ism, is intrinsically illiberal. But Mill was doing that in a in a very liberal way. He wasn't doing it in, this, in the way that we might think of it in today's terms, in terms of identity politics or group politics. Mill was doing it because he was a liberal, and he was doing it because he thought every individual, regardless of race, creed, color, gender, had the same right as anybody else to pursue their own good in their own way. What, what do you think Mill would have thought, or what did Mill think of the idea of the general will? Mill was skeptical about the idea that societies acted in some sort of organic way, that you could discern a, a general will. And in fact, he was quite concerned about the way that mass democracy combined with mass media might create a sort of mobocracy in a sense, that, that in the wrong hands and the wrong conditions, that actually you could see that certain people would be able to use the anger or angst or anime of certain people um, to their own ends. He was very worried about demagogues. He was very worried about um, elected heads of state for that reason, actually. And so what he was always concerned about was the fact that there was always be a minority, there'd always be people who disagreed with the prevailing opinion. And he was very worried about any kinds of ocracies, if you like, theocracies, 
um, or any kind of society in which the rights and liberties of the few could be at risk from the views of the many. And that included this whole idea of a kind of general will. There's no general will to be uncovered. Is there a rival tradition of democratic thought bound up in the work of somebody like Jean-Jacques Rousseau focusing on majoritarianism as opposed to the rights of the minority? Yeah. Yes, I think, it's, I think it's a fair distinction to say that there are views that are based on this idea of the general will, of the organic whole, of almost like this, the idea of society, some sort of organic unity and body, which you do see in Rousseau, and which has influenced more communitarian thinkers to this day. And the idea that somehow you can uncover a general will, you can get at the kind of majority views. And that is in stark contrast to Mill's views about democracy, which are always going to be attentive to the concerns and needs and rights of different groups, you know. He supported the rights of Mormons to be polygamous in the US, even though he was not in favor of polygamy himself because he wanted that pluralism. And so Mill's approach to liberalism and to democracy is one that is quintessentially pluralist. And defending the idea of pluralism is very, very important to Mill. And so it's one of the reasons, for example, Mill was very, very skeptical about the idea of universal suffrage until he encountered the idea of proportional representation, because he was very worried that if you had a majority working class party dominating parliament, that actually they could then crush the rights um, of, the, of the minority. And so in that sense, his, his liberalism is always minoritarian as opposed to majoritarian. So if Mills on Liberty is the New Testament of minoritarianism, <laughs> yeah. might yeah. we describe Rousseau's social contract as the New Testament of majoritarianism? I think it's fair to, to describe uh, Rousseau as having a majoritarian New Testament view of these things. And I think that's partly because of this. It's a fundamental disagreement uh, at, a, at a very important level about the, the relationship of the individual to society and the extent to which one serves the other. Mill was absolutely clear that individuals didn't somehow dissolve into the, uh, the fluid of society, right? Of course we live in societies, of course we live in communities, of course we have to live with each other, we have to find ways to live with each other, but we don't cease to be individuals. Whereas a Rousseauian view is that to some extent there's a dissolution of the individual into the body politic or the body of society. And that's a line of thinking which very much disturbed Mill, as I think it should disturb all good liberals. Is the contemporary division of democracy between so-called illiberal democracy and million democracy, or whatever you want to call it, is this a, a reappearance of that Mill-Rousseau division of majoritarianism versus minoritarianism? I would say that it's a reassertion of it in a way that is stronger than we've seen perhaps in, in recent decades. But we shouldn't forget that for a long period of the 20th century, there were regimes, especially those to the east of the Berlin Wall, that were very strongly majoritarian and had taken, taken a Rousseauian and Marxist view into, into un undemocratic regimes. It was really only with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the so-called end of history that there was a sense that liberal democracy was somehow on the march. What I do think is happening now, though, is that in a way that Mill and Rousseau and others would have recognized is that the tensions between the rights of the majority and the minority, the tensions inherent in any liberal society and in any democratic polity 
are becoming sharper again. And that's because there are plenty of people in those democracies who don't feel as if it's delivering for them in the way that it has in the past. And that means that the very structure within which political debate has taken place is being questioned. So to that extent, I think that Millian liberalism has been the victim of its own success because within pretty broad parameters in most of the societies we're talking about, liberalism was the ground upon which political argument took place rather than the thing over which political argument took place. And that means that as it became the ground of the argument rather than the subject of the argument, that to some extent liberals became complacent. It looked like we were going to win. Do you think liberal democracy is in crisis in the world today? I think the question is whether liberal democracy is in a crisis now across the Western world. That's a word that's being used a lot. Uh, I think it's a word we perhaps sometimes use a little bit too loosely, but in this case, I think it's appropriate. I think that the degree to which some of the basic tenets of liberalism and democracy are being questioned and tested in some of our societies means that we are, we are facing questions that we haven't faced for many decades, if not longer. You're seeing it in the UK with Brexit, you're seeing it in parts of Eastern Europe, you're seeing it in Turkey, we're seeing it in the US with the rise of populism on the, on the, on the right and left in the US, many of which are kind of questioning areas of policy and politics which were previously seen as largely settled. And so what we're seeing is the unsettling of previously settled area of policy. And those areas were largely liberal settlements. And so those of us who are, who are part of the liberal movement, I think, need to take some responsibility for the degree to which those settlements perhaps weren't working for everybody. If Mill could be brought back to life. Well, that would be great. Uh, what would be two things, very briefly, his observation, would he be amazed with what's happening or be fairly familiar? But secondly, and more importantly, how would you say we fix this stuff? I was, I was once asked uh, by a journalist, who would I spend a flight to, from the UK to Australia sitting next to? And I asked if I was allowed dead people, and they said yes. And so I said, John Stuart Mill, 24-hour flight. I've got a lot of questions to ask him. Um, and some of them are quite trivial, but um, some of them would be, I think, quite important. Um, I think that looking around now, Mill would be... Uh, astonished about the level of economic growth that we've continued to achieve. He thought that we'd get to a point where we might hit a stationary state, we would decide we didn't need more economic growth. And so I think that the extent to which capitalist growth has continued pretty much unabated would have, would have surprised him as it would many of his uh, contemporaries. Uh, I think he would have been largely delighted with the movement we've seen towards uh, human rights. He wouldn't have used that phrase, of course, but the rights of women, uh, the movements towards racial equality, and so on. What would Mill think about our current situation? Uh, I'm, I think what Mill would be looking to is the character of the citizenry. Uh, Mill was of the view that in the end we can't get the governments we, we deserve. And, and I think what Mill would be concerned about is whether or not the institutions of liberal democracies were continuing to help create liberal citizens. Because in the end, he believed that the worth of a society was the worth of the people comprising it. And so he didn't see liberalism as a sort of technocratic system, a set of arrangements, you know, gears and, um, and levers. He saw liberalism as something that sprung from the citizenry and from educated, uh, powerful individuals able to disagree with each other, but yet live together. And so I think he'd be concerned about our education system. I think he'd be concerned about some of our social institutions. And I think he'd be worrying that we're actually, to some extent, we'd become complacent about the ingredients for liberalism. 
upon which in the end the institutions of liberalism ultimately sit. Without people who are liberals, we won't have liberalism for very long. Do you think he might have thought that liberalism or the current liberal system was too noisy? Liberal societies are inherently noisy, messy, cacophonous, difficult, and often uncomfortable places to live. Mill, like all liberals, never offered us comfort. He never offered us the idea that we won't have our ideas and position challenged. They're necessarily turbulent. But I think what Mill would have found it very difficult to imagine is the rise of social media and the online platforms and the speed of communications. He was worried about national newspapers in 19th century England and the effect that would have. And so I do think that there's a, a ch one of the challenges to M Mill's views about the value of free speech, for example, does come from the way in which social media can swirl and create mobs and actually uh, act as a kind of silencing mechanism. And so I do think that there's a profound challenge in the nature of modern media, which Mill couldn't have foreseen. I don't think it, it undermines the basic propositions of liberalism around free speech, but it does remind us that the point of free speech is not speaking, it's listening, it's engaging. And that's something that's in danger of being lost in the contemporary society. So how do we learn to listen? How do we learn to listen is one of the biggest questions I think that faces us today because there's so many people speaking. There are so much voice, so much noise. And so the capacity to listen is something that we have to think, we have to take from, from our families, from our educational institutions, from our schools, from our colleges. Those are the crucibles of liberal character. That's where we have to, we learn to listen to each other. I have- I'm already stopped listening to you, Richard. You've thrown all these big things at me and none of them seem very realizable. Are you holding your hands up really and saying, I have no idea how we learn to listen? I think the honest answer is that we teach our kids how to listen and that everybody has a responsibility to do that as a good parent. How and do I we think, do that? I think every institution, by practicing what we preach, by engaging in conversations with people that we disagree with and nonetheless respecting each other. I think that the most important, the thing that underlies the capacity to listen to someone, even someone with whom you disagree, sometimes quite strongly, is mutual respect. So as Milton said, you look each other in the eye, but the mark of a truly equal society is one where you look each other in the eye. And now I think what we're doing is we're looking down at each other. You see the elites looking down their nose to some extent at people who don't make, make the mark, the deplorables or clinging to their guns and Bibles. But you'll also see the disdain that people are feeling for each other. And actually, if we start to disdain and disrespect each other, of course, we don't listen to each other. So a precursor for listening and mutual listening is mutual respect. That is something that I have no magic wand to wave. I have no policy prescription for it, other than to take it very seriously at an individual level. And that means that politicians, including those at the most senior levels, have to model a respectful behavior, even for those who disagree with. I'm not convinced though by that answer because at least the class I'm from, you're from probably a similar class, sort of liberal, global liberal class, we brought our children up to be respectful. We brought them up with all these pieties about racial and gendered equality, and yet they're as guilty as the, the underclass at failing to listen. What's, is it a crisis of parenthood, of family, of culture? Something's gone seriously wrong. Yeah, I think, is it a crisis of family, culture, institutions? Probably the fairest answer to that is, is yes. And it's very difficult to figure out where, it's, where it starts and therefore where it ends and what we do about it. 
But I noticed, like, even in my own life, with my own kids, you know, lib attending liberal high schools in liberal institutions myself, is that we've mistaken respect sometimes for censorship, self-censorship or censorship of others. And actually the most respectful thing to do if you disagree with someone is to disagree with them, um, is to actually pay them the courtesy of saying, I disagree with you for this reason. But I think that for various reasons, it feels as if our, it feels as if our discourse has become somehow more fragile. Um, it's a bit like everyone's walking around carrying a Ming vase. Everyone's worried that they're going to make a mistake. They're worried that that mistake, mistake will mistake? You mean like they'll get accused of being a racist or a sexist or intolerant or... Or the opposite, you know, being a socialist or a cuck, to use that horrible online phrase that gets thrown at people like me every now and again and so on. That those sort of the, the, the vitriol that is available to one's opponents is much greater now. And so it's, it's the moment when your opponents become your enemies. And so there is a fear on all sides and in various different domains of life as to the kind of consequences of just engaging in an open argument and debate. And somehow that's somewhat disrespectful because I think one of the problems is that some people have too strongly fused their ideas of their identity, which means that if you if you criticize someone's ideas, you're attacking, you're criticizing their identity. That's a profoundly illiberal turn because what that means is that we're somehow incapable of saying, I think your ideas are bad and wrong without in any way suggesting that you are bad and wrong. But we've got to that point now where it's, it's become so personalized. In that sense, the politics truly, tr politics truly has become quite personal. So how do we depersonalize public discourse? How do we depersonalize public discourse is, the, is a, a great question. And go back to a situation where it feels as if it's less about what this says about the individual or the idea or what they're saying and more the value of what they're saying and what Mill called the, you know, the collision of ideas. Mill had this wonderful phrase. I know you don't talk about Mill anymore. Doesn't matter. Go on. Mill had this wonderful phrase where he said the the person you're arguing with is trying to get to the same mountaintop. They're just taking a different route. And at some point, we've lost that. There's been a coarsening. There's been a are you with us or against us? A them and us turn in public discourse. And it's really hard to know exactly where that comes from. And it's very hard to know exactly what to do about it, other than to not be part of it yourself. So you have a magic wand. You can do one thing now to help decourse, if that's such a word, uncourse and decourse in the public discourse. What do you do? Uh, one of the things I would do is make sure every high schooler attends a citizenship ceremony. I think part of the problems with our discourse right now is views about immigrants. And I think that actually attending a patriotic and moving ceremony would be an excellent thing to do. And I think that everybody, as part of their education system, should engage in debate. It should become a formal, systematic, and sustained part of the education system where we learn to debate, we learn to take different sides. And you flip it, you have to argue one side one way, argue another side the other way. Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that high school debate can save America, but I do think there's something about the difference between a debate and the current arguments we have. And so I want to re I'd like to reintroduce the idea of debate into our education system. I think you mentioned, you, you, you pointed, to, you touched earlier on the economic divisions of society contributing to the crisis of democracy. Maybe you could say something more about that. I mean, how, yeah, yeah. how important is the increasing economic and cultural inequality of Western societies in today's crisis of liberalism or crisis of liberal democracy? I think there's a strong economic underpinning to the crisis that we see right now. 
And I think that the, one of the reasons why many working class and middle class people in many societies feel as if they're being left behind by the elite is that they're being left behind by the elite. Just in terms of pure economics, the top 20% of societies uh, tending to do much better, tending to have college degrees, tending to marry people with college degrees, tending to live in more economically segregated neighborhoods. Their kids are doing better. They're living longer. They're healthier. And so actually they're doing pretty well. And you'll see that actually the biggest growth areas for employment in many countries are in the personal services that help those people, their gardeners, their massage therapists, their housekeepers, et cetera. We, those of us in those professional upper middle class positions have done pretty well. We've done pretty well out of globalization. We've done pretty well out of free markets. We've done pretty well out of immigration. We've done pretty well out of recent economic settlement. That is not true for people lower down the economic spectrum. It's not that they haven't seen any growth, but they've seen much, much slower economic growth. That can only be bad news for politics. So it's the 1%. No. They're, the 1% is <laughs> the problem. No, it's not just the 1%. The idea that it's just the 1% against the we are the 99%, I think is a, is a profoundly unhelpful and pernicious way to frame inequality because it lets everybody else off the hook. It means that the upper middle class professionals, people like me, People doing well, but not maybe top one percenters. Oh no, we're not the problem. It's just those people. It's just the the, the really rich people. You know, the people at half a million a year or whatever. And that is not how I read the evidence. It actually, it's it's not just them that are pulling away. It is those comfortably in six figures, professional incomes, reasonably secure jobs. They, we, are doing much better than the majority. The real divide, in my view, is not between the top one percent and the 99% below them, it's between broadly the top 20% and everybody else below them is being left behind. And, and, the, and what happens is that liberal, professional, upper middle class people have convinced themselves that they're not part of the problem. And it's just their college friends who ended up even richer than them that are the problem. And that is a really, really pernicious myth. You might add you have a term for this, you call them dream yeah, hoarders. Yeah. And I, I call the, the folks at the top who are convincing themselves that they're not a part of the problem. And you're hoarding wealth, opportunity to themselves. I call them dream hoarders. They're taking the American dream and they're hoarding it for themselves. Not only the American dream, is this true across all Western societies? There's a general trend, which is that there's the top pulling away, the top 10%, 20% doing better than everybody else. It's different in different countries. But the, the story of inequality is not as simple as the rich and the poor getting further apart. It's really the rich defined more broadly than the top 1% pulling away from everybody else. It's not as if the middle class have suddenly pulled away from the poor. They're rising at about the same rate. It is that those of us at the top are pulling away from everybody else. So that's the story of inequality. It's the front wagon that's really pulling away from all the other wagons. And so uh, it's, it's, if someone says to you the gap between rich and poor is growing, that's empirically not true. The gap between the rich and everybody else is growing. Do you think one of the reasons why we have such a corrosive political, cultural climate is because of the hypocrisy of these dream hoarders. The fact that they vote liberal and have all these liberal pieties and yet also benefit from the system. Because overall, yeah. those people are probably more liberal than conservative, more, more likely liberal. to vote for, 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 for the Democrats in the US or more, more likely to be Remainers in the UK. Yeah. Here's a phrase that I used to hate, the liberal elite. I used to thought it was lazy populist nonsense. <laughs> I actually think there's really something to it now. 
because the elites very often do tend to be more liberal. They're certainly more socially liberal on many things. They're certainly more economically liberal. And they are the elite. And they, we, are doing pretty well. And I actually think that, as you see, so-called liberals hoarding opportunity, zoning poor people out of their neighborhoods, hoarding places at elite universities, making sure that they and their own kids are fine, whilst presiding over a set of economic arrangements that are actually not good for other people, then the charge of hypocrisy against the dream hoarders is one that I think we need to take very seriously indeed. And so the, the phrases liberal elite, liberal hypocrisy, and so on, ones that I used to recoil from and think were absolutely horrible, I actually now think have some real force behind them. And I think as the last few years have shown, any liberals who don't think that they are at risk of hypocrisy and don't think they're at risk of being elite and out of touch have got to look themselves in the mirror because actually it is the complacency and failure and disrespect of those of us who are liberals that is one of the things that's gotten into this fine mess and just blaming others for it won't do. We are partly to blame because we, were, we in our hubristic liberal triumph, didn't take seriously the concerns of our fellow citizens and we are reaping what we've sown. How can these dream hoarders learn to listen? Uh, we need the dream hoarders, the liberal elite, to listen. We need them to listen to their critics. We need them to listen to those who are not doing so well. I, I hope that one of the upsides of the political turmoil that we're now facing um, is to actually force some much needed reckoning on the part of liberals and of those who are in elite and ad advantaged positions for their own responsibilities and to listen to the concerns of others and to not just dismiss them out of hand as necessarily misogynist or racist or sexist or ignorant and so on, and actually to listen respectfully to the concerns of those we've been ignoring for far too long. I actually look back on some of the, you know, the hubris that many of us, I think, have demonstrated as liberal techno cosmopolitan technocrats. And whilst I don't want to give up on any of the basic tenets of liberalism, I think liberalism will only survive if it can be shown to be working for everybody and not just the top 20%. There seems to be a, a great gender divide now in the, in the division between majoritarianism and representative liberalism. That more men are voting for majoritarianism, more men vote for Trump, more, more men idealize Putin true. and That's Orban. That's absolutely true. Yeah, true. Um, and they vote more for Brexit. Yeah. Is the sort of the cultural crisis bound up with the failure of people to listen and talk to one another? Is it also bound up in the, in the politics of gender and in the dramatic shift in the role of men? There's a big gender gap in our politics right now. We see a 20 point gap in voting for President Trump, for example. Gen uh, if only women had voted, then the, the UK would not have left the EU. Um, similarly, in other countries, you're seeing that it is the majoritarian and populist leaders that are attracting much, much support from men than they are from women. And so I think that part of the story here, part of the crisis that we're living through is also, to some extent, a crisis of the position of men. And that with, within a very, very short period of time, we've transformed the scenery around men. The rise of women, which we should all welcome, uh, has meant that the economic dependence of women on men has, has dramatically shifted. But that has changed the, the world within which men live. Meanwhile, we've seen that men have tended to get the sharp end of trends in towards technology, more use of technology and in free trade. And so we've seen the economic shocks. And so the combination of those forces has been to leave many men feeling adrift um, and without a clear sense of identity. And I don't think it's good enough to just simply point at them and tell them to get over themselves and get with the program. I think actually that's another example of kind of liberal hubris. And again, one of which 
I would hold myself very guilty. Um, actually, we need to take seriously the fact there are structural factors influencing men. So, and, and, and we need to be more compassionate towards them. Um, so if, if, if Mill was on your, 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 your jet journey to your plane journey to Australia and rewriting on liberty, he might, rather than writing about the rights of women, he might today be writing about the rights of men as minorities, culturally at least. I don't think Mill will be writing a book called The Subjection of Men. <laughs> I think we are a long way from that point. But I do think that Mill would be concerned about the role of men in families and in institutions and in communities. And I think what would particularly concern Mill, and this is something of an inversion of his concerns in the 19th century, is a growing lack of agency among some men. And we're sort of seeing sort of lack of self-propulsion, of autonomy among men. And that may just be because previously, you know, their script was written for them. But Mill, I think, would look at the fact that we see many more young men still living at home than women, for example. Um, many fathers not in touch with their children. And I think he would discern something of a lack of individual agency among men. That would concern him about men or women or, or any group. But I think the fact that we are seeing it among men um, and a sort of retreat of men would disturb Mill and any other liberal. Be particularly concerning given that democracy is about human agency, male or female, right? I think a great description of democracy and lib liberalism writ large is it's all about human agency. In the end, it is about the agency of individuals to help carve their own lives. Men, women, black, white, that's the heart of liberal democracy. Final question, how do you teach agency then? Or how do you, how do you enable agency as a parent, as a teacher? Yeah, well, I think a big question is how do we enable agency in our kids? You know, I have three sons myself. And I think that the question of enabling agency in boys is now in some ways more pressing than in girls, because for good reason, we've had female empowerment, you go girl, girls who code, et cetera, and a kind of sense of really, really want to push women towards personal agency. And many women and young women are really taking those opportunities, really got a mindset of grabbing, grabbing what's available to them. Meanwhile, a lot of men are not getting the same messages. And so I think that actually the idea of kind of empowering boys shouldn't seem to be, shouldn't be a crazy idea because it doesn't happen automatically. And so I think the messages, the messages that we're sending to men and boys around agency are hugely important. The other thing I'll say is that optimism is really one of the engine oils of liberal democracy. People have to feel as if if they make investments now, take risks now, that they can pay off in the future. And I think one of the real challenges we face now is pessimism. In fact, pessimism is the, a bigger enemy of capitalism, in my view, than socialism, because a sense of the future being better and worth striving for is something that we're losing. And I really worry about some young men not having a strong sense of a better future for themselves. Do you think men make unhealthier pessimists than women? I think pessimism is a bad thing for men and for women, but I... And democracy. And for everybody, I would say one of the differences still is that women have children and tend, even as things stand, to be doing more of the caring for them. And so actually, I think perhaps one of the things that helps women to remain more optimistic, or at least more oriented to the future, is their children. And we've somewhat detached men from their children in, in, in some places. And I think actually, to the extent that to use that cliche, children are the future, Men need to be strongly attached to their children to have a strong sense of their own future. So men need to become like women. I think that men need to, I think that men need to become stronger parents. They need to become stronger fathers in that sense, more like women and more like mothers. 
I also would say today, I'd like them to become more like women in the sense that they need to feel as if they have to exercise agency and that there is stuff out there for them to get, but it's not going to get given to them anymore. You know, the, if there ever was a patriarchy, it's diminishing pretty quickly. No one's giving my sons anything because they're boys. And so actually, if they want it, they've got to go get it. And meanwhile, there's a lot of girls around them who are doing that very, very effectively and good for them. But I don't want the boys to just watch themselves being overtaken. It's time for them to, you know, charge up the engines too.